0: giant robots smashing into other giant robots
1: this is the giant robots smashing into other giant robots podcast where we explore the design development and business of great products i'm your host chad Pital, and with me today is lokesh Dini, founder of exopolis lokesh thank you for joining me
0: thanks for having me here chad
1: why don't you uh tell people not only how to spell exopolis but what it is to begin with <laughs>
0: So, uh, Exopolis, uh, X-O-P-O-L-I-S, really derives from Metropolis and the economic exchanges that happen underneath it. So, Exopolis is really about resolving the world of work. And uh, what I mean by that is kind of refitting the job market for today's technologies and the future of work so that uh, workers are more empowered to find opportunities and employers are also better prepared to build more efficient and longer lasting teams
1: you know there's something that resonates with me about the future of work i belong to um, sort of an advisory board at the the university that i went to and we provide advice and stuff to the dean of the school and that was actually a phrase that they were using quite a bit in you know in terms of as industry as people who are out in the world, help us understand what the future of work looks like and help us understand how we can best train people to exist in that that different world. And I think on one hand, it was sort of taken for granted what the future of work looks like. Uh, and on another, it's a big unknown area. And so that was the first thing that we did when we were trying to provide advice is, is to say, well, what actually does the future of work look like? And, and certainly, It has changed, you know, the way businesses are organized, the way people work at companies has changed dramatically over the last, well, 30 years, but even in the last decade. So when it comes to Exopolis and what you've been looking at, how has work changed? And what do you see as some of the trends in the future of work?
0: Absolutely. I think that's a great question. Um, Let me just be upfront about it. As far as the future of work, we don't know. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of the problem, and and you touched upon it. It's it's a difficult thing to understand, to grasp, and it happens in many dimensions. And a lot of the impetus behind uh, forming Exopolis a few years back during my PhD, I was studying the impact of automation on career mobility, or you know even the idea that technologies displaced tasks that workers perform on the job. And, well, what does that mean for the skill development of workers? And what does that mean about what opportunities they have up ahead? We have research that's come out over time that shows displaced workers in certain sectors like manufacturing have a tougher time finding re-employment. Whereas we also hear this big story about the hollowing out of the middle, right? The routinization of work, which is taken over increasingly by machines or bots. And uh, those who are skilled with where the newer technologies are getting are finding a lot of opportunity. But those who are skilled in the technologies of the last century are finding less opportunity in this world. Actually, when when I came upon this research question and I tried to answer it, One of my professors had said to me, you know, when you have a research question, first think about the most ideal data set that can help you answer this question. And then from there, work down to how you can realistically get to the question. And uh, well, I thought about the most ideal data set that we can have. And we don't have that. You know, it's not currently available. In a way that is accessible for people to really study the granular evolution of work to prepare for it right? especially from a policy side as well mm-hmm. so at that point i thought well you know why not build one why not make it so i got uh, i reached out to the nsf uh, i applied for some grants with the nsf we held a workshop uh, out in with my professor phil hourswall at the time out in palo alto where we had some lead economists and researchers starting this topic to come and talk, and uh, also join some workshops over at MIT. And what I left with is that we don't have the right data set, right? The best Mm -hmm. thing that we have is this information on occupations. And uh, even there, we have about 1,100 occupations with a lot of detail, but an assumption that a person or individual in that occupation, whether it's a programmer, whether it is a welder, is basically doing the same thing regardless of which industry they are in or which city or where around the country they are. So we we really didn't have a granular view of what skills are evolving where and what does that mean for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's very much what got me interested to say, hey, let's build a map of the world of work that is dynamic and evolutionary and can help answer a lot of these questions. So when you ask about where the future of work is, We don't have the full answer yet. Yeah. We are uh, getting there, right? So there are people have put out estimates that nearly two-thirds of occupations are going to be gone in the next 30, 40 years. You know, others have said that, well, if technology is so displacing workers, why are there still so many jobs today? Right. So to better answer these questions, and and there is no one answer that is completely right or completely wrong, right? Context matters. We're talking about which industry, even which firm, and how businesses are adopting different automations or different technologies, how they value, say, even um, customer service versus technical development. All of these are kind of micro decisions that add up towards what happens and what we'll see at a macro level over the years to come. But for where we came at from Exopolis was very much to say, hey, let's first start putting together the information resource that's necessary to make better decisions in the job market. Mm-hmm.
1: So correct me if I'm wrong about any of these data points, but so my understanding is, in general, the number of like independent contractors or the number of people self-employed is continuing to increase, at least in the United States.
0: Yes. So it depends on how you define yeah, self-employment, cool. right? Mm-hmm. And this is a complicated question in of itself. So you can think of self-employment in itself as a necessity type self-employment versus an opportunity type self-employment. Right. So uh, people who start their own businesses or start selling their own wares and goods, making them because they don't have any other option. They're either marginalized from the usual labor market or they just don't have access to the same opportunities as most of us others do, whether we've been through college or uh, we have certain skill sets and or we have access to social and professional networks that provide us job opportunities. Mm-hmm. So you have that type of necessity, self-employment. And the other side is the more opportunistic type, right? which is uh, we've identified a new opportunity in the market and uh, we want to pursue this. And uh, this is where you'll see more innovation. This mm. is more classically the type of entrepreneurship that we define. Yeah. And if you look at both of these types, it varies considerably across different communities, across different groups, across different regions of the country. And it's very much tied into these ideas of uh, entrepreneurial ecosystems. And this is also a topic I've been studying with Phil Hourswald at the time, and we Put out a paper trying to look at ecosystems more in a biological perspective, where you have certain resources that contribute towards providing opportunity, and public policy has a big role to play within this. So, uh, when you're talking about the future of work and self-employment, there are two aspects within this also. So you can have the future of work creating opportunities for people to do more contracts, say 1099 work, you know, independent contracting. They have more right. flexibility. So their lifestyle preferences are playing a bigger role, right? They, they're they saying that uh, I want to be able to work remotely. I want to choose which projects I want to work on. They have a certain flexibility and bargaining power in the market. And and this is relatively new, right? Where the technology is allowing individuals to increase their bargaining power in contrast to employers. Uh, Whether this be because remote work is easier right now, distributed workforces are more apparent, skill sets are more specialized, uh, there are many reasons for that. And the other side of the future of work, again, within this context, is being able to build teams that can take an invention and bring it to market, which is really the whole process of innovation, right? And This has also been enabled a lot by technology, but uh, in in terms of opportunity, there is definitely more opportunities for growth for individuals through entrepreneurship, through self-employment, through independent, but you have to have the right skill sets and you have to be plugged into the right groups.
1: This seems to dovetail and interact with what I think is another trend, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in general, turnover or length of time spent at companies is shorter now than it has been in the past?
0: Uh, Yes. So this is actually, I would say, a facet of the American economy, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, where job switching is quite prominent. And uh, historically, it it has good outcomes in terms of uh, people being able to find a right fit for themselves. So you're always going to have a better, more effective team. You're going to have better outcomes, more productivity when the individual who's working on a certain project wants to be there and is well fit with it. And also with the culture of the company or the team that they are there with. Mm -hmm. The ability to switch across and find what is good for yourself is a good thing. Job searching is good. The churn is good. Now, at the same time, I'll say churn can also be bad because... As i mentioned earlier if you have people being displaced because of say outsourcing or uh, automation or something of the sort that can force people out of jobs that they want to be in right so so there can be a negative aspect to this as well
1: and employers might look at that trend and say we'd love to retrain people or we'd love to invest in training people but if they're only going to be here for three years how do we make that back and if they're looking at you know, that trend overall, it might be an unattractive proposition.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So something that uh, we'd call an internal labor market, right? So this used to be common a few decades ago that the company that you were in was very vested in your development within the company, right, growing from being on the work floor all the way up into a manager or some managerial position of the sort. So your career progression and development was kind of encouraged and developed within the large business itself. It's expensive for a small business to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you have workers switching across exactly as you said, there's less incentive for a business to invest in a worker if they're going to leave or switch jobs, At the same time, what we do see is those businesses that do invest more in their workers, the workers are more likely to stay Mm -hmm. if they find opportunity for growth. Also, we're seeing that with so much, you know, what you referred to as a 1099 work earlier, contracting, people moving across different teams. There's a lot of cross-pollinization of ideas, of uh, skills, of uh, opportunities, of even identifying, hey, what can I do next from where I am right now? And uh, those are generally good things for a labor market, right? So you don't always want to hold on to the same team and keep them growing. You want to kind of refresh yourself with new ideas. You want to kind of re-energize yourself with different types of people, have diversity of people, of ideas, of backgrounds, of histories, of experience, because that is what keeps a company innovative and keeps it growing over time.
1: Yeah. Are there other trends or data points that you've uncovered in your work that you think do influence or could influence when we think about what companies look like or what workforces look like in the future?
0: Yes. So I'd say one trend uh, that's really caught my eye and is interesting is even in this digitized age or this uh, age of democratization of information, opportunity in the labor market is not as democratized. And there are lots of reasons for this. There can be different reasons, and uh, every case should be studied within its own context. For instance, we are currently doing a project with the Small Business Administration Office of Advocacy to study Black entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs and their contributions and challenges. And uh, mm-hmm. this is a detailed empirical study we're taking on. It's going to last over about a year before we put out any results, but uh, even just preliminary studies uh, looking over what people have studied in the past, right? What we see is even between minority entrepreneurs, the share of minority entrepreneurs for say Asians, Latinos, has grown over time. In contrast, African-American entrepreneurship hasn't picked up as much, right? And the question has been, why not? They've had significant contributions. There have been some stellar Black entrepreneurs who have had uh, immense impact technologically and uh, socially in the U.S. But we are wondering why, as a community, there have been what the challenges remain on, on this front. And it it shows that not everybody is finding equal access to opportunity, and there is lots of room for policy to become more active. We need to ask the right questions, need to propose the right hypothesis, and we need to do the right studies to bring out this information so uh, we can plan better, right? We can see what gaps are there and have policy kind of fill in those gaps or create a more level playing field for everybody.
1: So that sounds like a really interesting and and potentially impactful research study, which brings me to one of my next questions, which is, you mentioned you started on this when you were getting your PhD. So how have you converted this from what you were doing to an an actual business? And and how are you finding these opportunities to to do this additional research and make sure that you can stay in business?
0: So... My transition from more of an academic uh, into an entrepreneur was, has been quite fun and challenging <laughs> to say the least over the past couple of years. But uh, you know, soon after we had those workshops uh, I was talking about earlier, where we are trying to understand the future of work, what are the challenges and what are the main gaps to fill, I left those conversations feeling, well, we need a better information resource. But uh, also I felt for this information resource to work, it, it cannot just be... policy tool or it cannot just be an academic exercise it really has to be plugged into the labor market and uh, needs to be a commercial implementation and uh, for this i joined the national science foundation's innovation core program where uh, over six weeks i flew to five different cities across the country and interviewed 117 people in person. It was very much a customer discovery experience, and the NSF ICor instructors were just brilliant and just pushing us towards understanding. You know, just leave your technology behind. Think about what the customer needs right? Understand what the pain points are, understand where the bottlenecks are, you know, go and talk to people, figure out what the need is in the market, and then can your technology actually help solve that? And if it can, is it something that people will actually use and buy? So during that time, I I talked with mayor's aides, I talked with college students, I talked with program managers, I talked with recruiters, a bunch of people all over the place, uh, workforce boards and uh, curriculum designers, And for me, the challenge at that point was uh, maintaining focus and kind of drilling down to the one core inflection point where our technology will have the largest impact and can address an unsolved niche. That took a while. And finally, when I got there, uh, we realized that we needed to build a talent management tool that is career-minded in its approach. So it empowers both the worker and the employer but really transitions the static technologies of a resume and a job posting into something more dynamic that is not just based on a worker's past experience, but on their future potential and their future goals. So that's how we came to really develop our first prototype and product uh, as an expertise finder and the career compass. Mm -hmm. And that transition has taken about A year and a half going through it, really going out into the customer. So, so going from an academic perspective, where I was, uh, and I'll admit to this, you know, the idea that I sit in the cubicle, do all this research, and then I'm like, wow, okay, this technology is awesome. It's going to be the greatest thing. But then really going and talking to people and taking the hits, being like, well, just because I think it's awesome doesn't mean it's actually awesome or that anybody's going to use it. So, that switch to becoming a lot more open to understanding what people's problems are, listening, and then trying to solve was a big challenge for me. But I think overcoming that has really allowed me to enjoy the entrepreneurial experience. It's empowering for me too. I feel like I'm actually participating and having an impact in the world.
1: Yeah. Well, I love to hear that you actually talked to customers when figuring out what it was that you should create. I'm a big believer that it would have been a huge mistake not to do that. And I'm sure that they helped guide you in the right direction. Are the research awards that you're getting now, what's supporting you? Or did you also take additional funding?
0: Oh, so following the Innovation Core, I applied for the Small Business Innovation Research Award. And uh, we won that uh, through the National Science Foundation, yeah. which is uh, a seed fund, the federal government seed fund for uh, disruptive innovation So that helped kind of uh, foster our R&D, but you know, that funding is just for the research and development for your initial tool. Mm -hmm. So when I went to talk to like 117 people and the customer discovery continued after that, uh, you uncover a lot of problems and there are a lot of inefficient processes and there are small, easy kind of problems that can solve given the technical skill sets that we have. So I did call back some of the people, get a hold of them and said, hey, you know, uh, we could do this or we could solve this on a small scale. And uh, there were little projects uh, and little research reports that I've done along the side, uh, very much within our study of uh, equity and opportunity. And those have helped fund the business as we are also growing. Mm -hmm. A danger with that has always been, well, you know, how do you balance your time? You want to focus on developing the scalable product. But at the same time, you also want to build your skills and keep the money flow coming on the smaller projects, yeah, but you know now as uh, once we got to the prototypes, we shifted more towards focusing just on uh, the talent management products, and uh, we're growing through family and friends, as you say.
1: yeah so is that the stage that you're at now in terms of you you have a prototype, you have an initial sort of version that you're building upon?
0: We are uh, getting the prototype out, and we are working with a client to start using our product, so Mm -hmm. we can really have usability metrics and uh, guide that towards honing our final product before we open it up completely. Yeah.
1: So as you have been putting together your company, how has the knowledge that you have influenced how you've been building your company and the team that has been creating this first version
0: so this idea of focus on a customer and really talking to people to understand a problem before solving it has had a huge impact so it's also affected me on my research side right even having just doing a research paper or something I'm, i i want to talk to people before just relying on data but the other thing that happened was earlier on when i first started with the product development I was focused a little too much on the technology and what all I can do, right? Uh, and a critical inflection point came when uh, I got uh, Matt, my lead designer, to really be in lead of putting everything together, working with me. And he's he's great. He just like, was like is the user going to like this? What is the user experience? And as soon as we did that, kind of put the user in the driver's seat for our design and development, that really changed everything for us that brought uh, iterative development a lot faster it just kind of honed everything in and it it gave a confidence into we are actually building something for someone and solving a real problem and uh, next year we are looking to launch it a lot more broad based
1: now when you say next year any particular time frame
0: next year by april of next year
1: yeah how in general have you approached sort of timelines and, you know, expectations around how long things are going to take and and what your goals are?
0: So one timeline that we uh, automatically are on is, as I said, the Small Business Innovation Research Award. So the award is made for us, it was the 10-month timeline. So we had that timescale to finish our uh, R&D for the prototype. And as far as building out the product, it was I was constantly in communication with customers, so customer discovery never really ended, mm-hmm. and it's always an ongoing process. And we kind of matched that with uh, how growth of some of the clients that we or, or even our prospective clients is going to be. Uh, we took our MVP, timed that out with the team, with when we think it would be prepared, and uh, strategically mapped it out in that sense. Yeah. And has it
1: matched your expectations?
0: To uh, some extent. So, that was a big hesitation there. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be frank. So, uh, as I said, initially, when I had started out on this, it was going slow. Yeah. Mostly because I was still very much stuck on the technology, my technology rather than our solution. Mm -hmm. It was only after I made a decision to let's make this completely Mm user-led. And uh, I had our uh, lead designer in the lead of pushing this whole thing forward. Then things snapped into place and we started to follow timelines much better. We started to have outcomes much better. So strategically, I think that was a big advantage for me.
1: That's great to hear because that's one of the things that at Thoughtbot we advocate, which is talking to users is going to guide your product in a way that oftentimes will will not only improve the product you're building, but cause you to say, oh, you know, this thing we thought was important is not important. And so you you end up saving time as well as building the right thing in the first place.
0: Absolutely. I mean there are so many assumptions that I make. <laughs> and yeah. it's it's until I really say it out loud, I don't always realize that it's an assumption. Right. If we take it for granted. In a sense, you're socializing the problem to solve it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, having uh, users involved is very much an important aspect, and it's something I've learned. So what does the team look like now? So there are there are two teams. Uh, one is, as I mentioned, a research side, which is where we are working on the African-American entrepreneurs, their contributions and challenges. On the product side, we have a lead designer. There is Trace, who's helping with the AI and the natural language processing models alongside me. Uh, Josh is doing the back-end development, and he's amazing, uh, just fixing everything up with AWS and helping us scale. And we have Adam, who's also doing the front-end development uh, and making things fit to Matt's designs and my designs.
1: And how did you find all these people and put this team together?
0: So I reached out to a lot of people. I was lucky to come across Matt and Trace through other people I've been working with uh,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: in the D.C. area. I did reach out to some people using the World of Work database eventually, Yeah, and uh, that's how I'm looking to grow.
1: You headed off my question, which is obviously, I think so much of placement or filling positions or whatever comes from who you know. How does that factor into your plan for the product or what you're planning on doing?
0: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, uh, the biggest example is LinkedIn, right, which is a professional network. Mm -hmm. It's all about who you know that helps you find opportunity, but uh, there's a limitation to how far that goes as well. Yeah. So our solution is very much targeted for people within an organization. Okay. The problem we are solving is that uh, most people, once they've joined an organization or a company, they don't really update their resumes, right, Mm -hmm. until they're looking for the next job however uh, managers when they're building teams within the organization for different activities rely on these type of resumes or the information that they have on people to see well what skill sets are available who's working on what can we get them on this team or not so the tools that we have built especially with the nlp and everything is kind of automating aspects and summarizing aspects of an individual's resume bringing them up to speed and keeping them up to date with minimal interaction from the individual Mm -hmm. so the way we are doing it is allowing managers to kind of maintain better databases and better career metrics career analytics for the people within the company
1: yeah That sounds good. And so is the primary job to be done or our initial use case at a larger company, putting together a team of people or figuring out the next things people should learn to properly position themselves within the organization to contribute? Uh,
0: Yes. So one one very small distinction here, but I think it's an important one. It's not what people should learn. It's Uh what people want to learn. Okay. And uh, I think that's an important distinction because uh, a lot of times we use AI or algorithms and people will be like, well, you know, I don't want a machine telling me what to do. Right. But uh, when you ask people, well, where do you want to be in your career? Very few people have, you know, an idea that 15 years from now, I want to be at X position. Right. right? So uh, the way we are approaching it is given what you have right now, This is what people with similar profiles like you have done in your area or in your company or in the past. Mm -hmm. So these are effectively the opportunities that are available to you based on what others have already done, how others have moved in their careers. Then you can identify your preferences. And based on those preferences, you can say, well, you know, you can improve your skills in this region or in this region, and that'll help you get towards these other steps that you want to get. Yeah, we worked
1: with a company, similar sort of idea, but their customers were educational institutions. So you might go to a, you know, a school's website and say, here's what I know. And then it, it would show you sort of like, here's typical things that people with your skill set would build upon using our educational programs. And here's the jobs that they might get in the future. And that was a really interesting take on that as well. So there's lots of different needs out there for people to use this kind of learning model, it sounds like.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, so I guess one kind of fun or interesting uh, example was I was talking to this buddy of mine from some time back and uh, his uh, girlfriend at the time was in LA trying to be a musician. Mm -hmm. It hadn't really worked out and she was looking for where to go next. So I said, huh, that's interesting. Let's see what musicians in that area typically do if they haven't moved on from there and uh, probably the third or fourth in the list was them going into the tech industry and i was like wow you know i wouldn't have anticipated that but he was like you know it's really weird you're saying that because she was interviewing with spotify (laughs) so a skills analysis wouldn't have seen this opportunity yep Right. But looking at the way we are doing it, you can see how others have kind of figured out where the opportunities lie, and then they jump on that path. Yeah. Really a lot of finding opportunities, knowing what others around you have done.
1: So you're planning on launching to a more general audience outside of your test customers, hopefully by April. And then what do you think is, is next beyond that, to the extent that you can say?
0: Beyond that is... Refining this product uh, and the second one is really a career compass. So Mm -hmm. right now, as I said, the value proposition is for the manager and very much within a company or within an organization. The next step from there where I want to go is a career compass for the broader population where it's, it's the other side of the equation which ties more with what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. How do you find the right opportunity? Where do you get the right opportunity? And uh, then you'll be able to plug in the solution that we have for internal to companies with people externally. So you can have a more or less seamless transition across these type of labor markets, whether it's internal or a regional labor market. Mm -hmm.
1: Do you anticipate raising money outside of the grants that
0: you've already gotten and that sort of thing at that stage? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we are already in the process, yeah. but uh, I think once we have our prototype full and ready and be showing strong usability metrics, we'll have a stronger bargaining power. Yeah. Now.
1: Are you thinking traditional venture capital? Yes. The reason why I phrased it like that is because today I would say that your funding has been not traditional in some ways <laughs> through the grants yes. and the research.
0: Yes. It's not been traditional so far, but it's not scalable. Right, And uh, we want to get to that scalable space. Mm-hmm. And for that, we need VC. Yeah. For
1: these customers that you plan on bringing on, these initial customers, have you set expectations with them of the solution that you're building being charged for?
0: Yes. Uh, we've been in discussion about mm-hmm. this. I do not want to get into more detail about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about the pricing at this point.
1: Yeah, no, not in terms of specific pricing, but... Has there been any challenges or resistance as you've sort of transitioned from, oh, this thing we're building to this thing you might eventually be paying for? Has there been any challenge or learning there for you?
0: Well, nothing big in terms of the challenges mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. But I do anticipate there's going to be some discussions about how this transitions when we get into the larger market Yeah. and open this up to the commercialization.
1: Right. Well, Lokesh, I really appreciate you sharing your story. You've been on a really super interesting journey, and it, it strikes me that the impact that your potential product can have and coupled with the research is really high. And so I wish you the best of luck, and thank you for uh, again for stopping by and sharing the story with us.
0: Well, thank you so much. This was a great discussion. Uh, it helps me also identify a lot of gaps in my own thinking, yeah. <laughs> and anticipate some things coming up, which was uh, a yeah. lot of the reason why I wanted to be part of this. Also, as I said, yeah. you know, a, a lot of entrepreneurial growth is, uh, in a sense, socializing our problems.
1: Yeah. So, if people want to follow along with you or find out more or get in touch with you, where are all the places they can do that?
0: Oh, great. So we have a website which is Exopolis or X O P O L dot I S, mm-hmm. and uh, they can follow on any information that we have. We have about our products and our research coming up, and they can sign up there to receive updates from us as well.
1: Well, once again, thank you and best of luck.
0: Thank you so much, Ed.
1: You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm, and you can find me on Twitter at CPITEL. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
0: This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, let's build something great together.